Hebrews chapter 6. Actually, you might as well turn to chapter 5 because we're going to go from the very beginning here this morning. This is the last couple verses of our uh, very long warning passage that started back. Chapter 5, verse 11, runs all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to finish, Lord willing, the last two verses here uh, this morning of that entire passage. We've been looking at it now for about four weeks plus. Maybe this, is, this might be the fifth message here in this warning passage. And so uh, we're finally going to finish it up here uh, today. Lord willing, as I said. It's been very difficult text to deal with, has it not? It's been very challenging theologically and personally. There's a lot of very hard truths in this warning passage. There's things that are difficult to understand. There's things that we have a hard time matching up theologically. That's why it's been wrestled through for 2,000 plus years. And uh, like I said in the very beginning, before we even started this passage here, there are good people on both sides of it, good godly people on both sides of how to understand this passage. And, uh, and I know in, uh, in their hearts they're trying to, uh, to understand this passage and teach this passage in a way that's true with Scripture. And so that's what we've been trying to do as well. But these hard truths have been necessary both for us and for this little church that was receiving them at first and uh, they were struggling so mightily under persecution and trials. And they were tempted to fall away from their profession of faith. Matter of fact, they were tempted to fall uh, not only away, but way, way back, all the way back to Judaism, where from which they were saved. Uh, they were saved out of Judaism. They were, they were tempted to do that. So look at chapter 5, verse 11, just to pick it up from the very beginning of this context here so we can wrap our heads around this entire passage. Remember, they had ceased maturing. Whoa, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. My brain is way ahead of my mouth for some reason here. Okay, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Right? Dull of hearing, that's that Greek word, nothros, nothros. They had ceased maturing. They had indeed become dull of hearing. Do you remember what that means? That means lazy or sluggish. They had become lazy or sluggish. And they had stopped applying the truth of God's word to their lives. They had, they had started off that way. And then for whatever reason, probably persecution or trials, whatever it was, uh, they had moved back now and were falling back. And well, I know these things. And these things I used to believe as truth here. And uh, instead of applying the truth of God's word to a fuller understanding of those things, they said, you know, forget that. It's easier to just go back and cling to these old things that I used to know. It's safer that way. If I just hang on to these religious rituals, if I just hang on to these ceremonies, if I just go back to taking my sacrifice to the temple each day, that's a lot easier for me than it is to start applying these truths and understand the deeper, fuller meaning of what it means in Christ what each of those things mean in Christ. That's a lot harder to do. That takes a lot more diligence. That takes a lot more effort to do that than it does to just hang back here in what they were familiar with. Had they continued to apply those truths, they would have matured in their understanding beyond just the basics of Judaism to a fuller understanding of those truths in Christ. Matter of fact, in verse 12, let's look at that. He said, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. 
You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. He tells them in no uncertain time, uh, in no uncertain terms here, by now, not only should you have a deeper, fuller understanding of these things yourself, you should be able to teach them to other people by now. We're at the point now where you're a second generation Christian here. Or you should be able to, at this point, not only understand those deeper things yourself, but apply them to others and teach them to others as well. But he says in verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So the author of Hebrews says, But you're not teachers, are you? You're still babies. You're still infants. I can't give you solid food because you're still on the bottle, if you will. You're still, you're still on mother's milk. And you should, indeed, have now progressed to solid food. Let's remember, before he even started this warning passage, he had began to teach them of why Christ is a better high priest. Remember chapter 4. We could come to the throne of grace, right, with confidence, because we have a great high priest, right? We can come there and receive mercy and find grace. And then he stopped right in the middle of that and said, I want to teach you some other things about why Christ is such a great high priest. I want to teach you why being from the order of Melchizedek is better than being from the line of Aaron. I want to be able to teach you that, but you can't handle the truth, if you will. You can't handle the deeper things of Scripture because you're still a baby. You're still an infant. And I need to be able to teach these other things because if you quit applying the truth of God's Word to your life, not only do you stop growing, you fall away. That's exactly what's happening here. So he says then in verse 14, But solid food is for whom? For the mature, for those who are growing in their faith, for those who are applying those truths to their lives, who because of practice, that means applying it to their lives, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They get it. They're, they're growing. They're applying it to their lives. See, true believers can handle solid food because they've matured in their faith. Verse 14, but those who had just made a profession of faith and then ceased growing ceased applying these truths and were indeed still babies. So then he began in chapter 6. And the author of Hebrews shares with them exactly which elementary principles he wants to deal with. So look at chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. Therefore, therefore, right? Every time we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves... Thank you. <laughs> I like that. All right. Therefore, leaving, right? So, therefore, based on all of you of the, are professing Christ and not maturing, right? Therefore, he tells them he wants them to do a couple things, right? Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, the anointed one, the Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, let us press on the maturity. So he stopped right there. So the, he says, listen, here's what, I, here's what I want. Here's the way that he wants to deal with them, and he wants them to do two things. He says, I want you to leave these elementary principles, and I want you to press on to a fuller understanding of Christ. I want you to leave behind these things. They were important for you to build the foundation. 
But that's not it. That's just the milk. You need to be able to go to the solid food. You're not going to find the solid food back in these elementary principles. You're going to find that solid food in Jesus Christ. And so you need to apply what you've been learning in the Gospels and what we've been teaching you through these letters of the epistles from those who traveled with Christ. And you need to apply those to your lives now so that you can come to a fuller understanding in Christ. And so he wants to leave them behind, the, the, the elementary principles of Judaism, and press on to their fuller understanding in Christ. What are those elementary teachings about the Messiah that he wants to have them let go? One is repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works. And faith in God. Remember, repentance is when we turn away. Metanoia, that's what that means. Turn away. And it doesn't just mean to turn partially. It means turn completely away. Turn 180 degrees. This is the path I was going on before. This is the path where sin controlled me. This is the path where I thought I was in control of my life, but I really was a slave to sin. And I recognize that, and I repent of that, and I turn away from that. But I don't just turn to myself to conquer those things. I turn in faith to God. I turn away from my sin, and I turn to God in faith. Repentance and faith are two, are, uh, are two sides of one coin. They always go together, repentance and faith. Just like faith and hope are tied very closely together. But repentance and faith in salvation. The second thing he says, I want you to... Uh, let go and press on are instructions about washings. These are ceremonial washings, as we, as I taught you before. And then the laying on of hands, which they would have understood because that's how they would have at the Day of Atonement, right? Taking the sacrificial lamb, the high priest would lay his hands on that, and that would be, he would be identifying uh, all the sins of Israel onto that lamb, which they then sacrificed uh, to God. The third couplet we see in this elementary teaching about resurrection of dead and then eternal judgment. Each of those six things have a very basic understanding in the Old Testament, but have a fuller understanding in Christ, do they not? See, in the Old Testament, repentance from dead works, they understood that they, they recognized that they sinned, they needed repentance. That's why they were taking their sacrifice over to the temple. But in Christ... What they needed to understand is that because of their faith in Christ, that that repentance, there was only a one-time sacrifice that was needed, right? So tying those days, and we could go through each of those as we did. Then in verse 3, he said, and this we will do. We will leave these things behind. We will press on to a fuller understanding if God permits, which is kind of a strange thing for us to read here because it's like, well, why would God... For why would God want us to not re, not move on? Why would he not want us? Well, that's what he's saying here is, and this again becomes the fulcrum for our warning passage in verses 4 through 8. The sense of this verse is we will press on to maturity. We will press on to completion if God permits. Because we know about those in the wilderness who hardened their hearts in disobedience and unbelief whom God did not permit, remember? You shall not enter my rest. Not you could not, not you might not, you shall not enter my rest. Then in verses 4 through 6, we saw this. For in the case 
And that for in the case there ties us to what he just said in verse 3. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So then, so we see in verses 4 through 6, these five verbs, they're really, uh, as I told you, aorist passive participles, which doesn't mean a lot, except that aorist means that this happened in a, uh, it was a one-time act in the past that had continuing results today, and passive means that they were not, it was not them acting on it. Something else was acting upon them. Okay? So we see him here. Enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, been made partakers, tasted the word, and then have fallen away. So these professing believers, which are still the subject here, had experienced all these things, and yet many had and were tempted to fall away. And the consequence of being in that position where you willfully reject all that the Lord has given you, an opportunity to experience, the consequences of that are deadly. That's the warning here in Hebrews. If you continually hear the gospel, if you're continually illuminated by the word of God, if you've shared in the experience in a community of faith where you've seen God transform lives, You've seen the the power of God at work in the community of faith. And you've seen that again and again and again. Maybe you've even experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. John 16, right? He will convict the world of sin. And yet, you've never totally surrendered to Christ. You just keep kind of going through the motions. The author of Hebrews says, that is a huge mistake. Matter of fact, it's a deadly mistake with eternal consequences. And he says, I don't, I don't want anybody to have to experience that. And the way that you experience that is that you harden your heart in unbelief. Matter of fact, in chapter 3, he called it disobedience. Why would he say disobedience? Because the gospel is a command, not a suggestion. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. So then he says in verse 6, that's our last of our five verbs there, this one, fallen away. That carries the idea of forsaking or not following through with commitment. That's the word uh, apostasy, where we get the word apostasy from, falling away. That's what that means. These are professing Christians. We've been talking about this entire epistle. These are not truly saved individuals. Instead, they have come right to the point of truly surrendering it all, but now are falling away from their profession. They've shared in the experience of those who are truly saved. They've repented of their sins when they made their profession. They've seen the transforming power of God at work, producing righteous fruit in the heart of true believers. And I believe they've even experienced the work of the Holy Spirit to some degree in their own lives when they were convicted of their sin and repented. But then came trials in their life. Then came persecution. And slowly but surely, they quit applying those truths of God's word to their lives. They became nothros. They became lazy. They became sluggish. 
in that application, and soon they were falling away. In fact, they had fallen all the way back to Judaism. For these professing Christians, the Bible tells them, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. The text indicates at one time they had repented. They had recognized they were sinners. They had recognized their need for a Savior. They had even made a profession of faith. But now they were tempted to fall away. And if they do, if those who had enlightened, who had been enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the experience of the Holy Spirit, tasted the Word of God, and then still fell away, the Bible tells us, it's not just difficult to renew them. The Word of God tells us it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That word renew means restore back to their original condition. What condition was that? The condition that brought about repentance in the first place, where they recognized their need for a Savior, repentant of their sins. The Bible tells us here that if you've experienced God's gracious offer of salvation, tasted of the heavenly gift of Christ, tasted of the word of God in your life, shared in the blessings from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then in the full revelation of God and his word and his son, and then you still harden your heart and walk away from it all and say, I don't want anything to do with Christ. And I am not going back. The Bible says it is impossible to renew you again to repentance. Why? Because in essence, the text tells us you are re-crucifying Christ to yourselves all over again. He's saying when in the full revelation you harden your heart in unbelief and reject Christ, you are crucifying him again every time you do that. Every time. You are putting him to open shame when you do that. You cannot re-crucify Jesus again and again and again and put him to open shame and disgrace. And then when you stand before God on judgment day, so I really didn't mean it. I was just, I really didn't take it seriously. Because God will say, Apart from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. When you willfully reject Christ through unbelief, you eliminate the only means by which men can be saved. You wipe that off the table. And just like those who wandered in the wilderness, who saw God's hand at work, who tasted the good word of God from Moses, who shared in the blessing through his spirit, who saw his divine hand at work through mighty miracles, still hardened their hearts in unbelief. That's why he keeps taking us back to this wilderness wandering in the Old Testament. He keeps saying, don't be like those guys. Have you ever heard people say this? If God would just make it clear to me that he was real, if God would just, you know, write it on the wall over here, you know, Pastor Ron, get saved. I would believe in a minute. You need to take them back to the wilderness wanderings over here. And say, really? These people were in slavery for 400 years. And they saw God's, they saw God bring plagues upon plagues upon plagues upon Egypt until the Pharaoh said, get out. 
And on your way out, take all the gold and silver with you. We don't care. Just go. And then they got out into the wilderness, over a million people, incidentally. And they saw this pillar of cloud by fire directing them. And then they saw this pillar of fire by night. Did I say pillar of cloud? Anyway, pillar of cloud in the day, pillar of fire by night. They saw God part the Red Sea and walk across in dry land. They saw manna fall from heaven. And when they grumbled about that, they saw quail. They saw water gush from a rock in the middle of the desert, enough to provide water for that many people. Do you remember what their response was? Moses, did you just bring us out of here in the desert to die? Back when we were slaves, we had a pot full of stew. Life was good. And Moses pleaded with God, Lord, Lord, don't strike them dead. Don't strike them dead for their hard hearts. But they kept it up, and they kept it up, and they kept it up until God said, because of your disobedience, because of your willful, hardened heart, despite everything that you've seen with your own eyes, you shall not enter my rest. You shall not make it to the promised land. When you do that, when you do that consistently time and time again, you put Christ to open shame again, just like they did 2,000 years ago, hanging on a cross, every time you reject him. Now, just to make sure they've understood this properly, God gives a little uh, agricultural illustration through the author of Hebrews in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. He says this, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. At first, the land benefits from the generous supply of rain, doesn't it? And it produces these valuable crops, and so it shares in God's blessing. But then it changes, and instead of producing vegetation, it starts to produce thorns and thistles. The land that had drank so generously of God's gracious rain becomes worthless when it stops yielding fruit for which its entire purpose was. It is no longer worth cultivating and at risk being written off and then eventually burned. And so the parallel here is obvious to these professing Christians, isn't it? All those who had drank of God's gracious rain, they'd been illuminated by the gospel. They'd experienced the word of God. They tasted repentance, Christ's wonderful offer of salvation. They shared in the work of the Holy Spirit in their own lives and the lives of others. They'd seen God's power in the transformation of sinners to redeemed believers. They're the ones who had the same rain fall on them. And those that responded in obedience and trust as their Lord and Savior, as Jesus, as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins, trusting in his finished work on the cross, trusting in him and him alone for eternal life, they received the blessings of eternal life. 
forever in the presence of God. But if after receiving God's gracious gifts, they then harden their hearts and reject the Lord Jesus willfully, intentionally, and in complete uh, disobedience and begin bearing thorns and thistles instead of the fruit of repentance for them. They face the judgment of God eternally. They face the eternal fire of God's judgment for all those who willfully reject the gospel and harden their hearts in unbelief. <coughs> now, after all that bitter news and the gravity of what he's just shared with those who had fallen away, the author of Hebrews, now again, he wants to encourage and comfort those who are the true believers. And he's going to say, don't be like them. Don't be like those who also made a profession of faith, but now are falling away. He wants to encourage them. He wants to comfort those. And there's a definitive change of tone that happens beginning in verse 9. He not only wants to warn them of the eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus, but he also wants them to have a full assurance of the hope that they have in their faith in Christ. And that's exactly what he sets out to do. Verse 9, he says this, But beloved, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Notice first he addresses them as beloved. This is the first and only time this term is used in the entire epistle. So there's a change of tone. He's now differentiating between the saved and the unsaved. Things, he said, what are these better things now that he refers to? Well, things are better than the things that await the thorns and thistles, are they not? The judgment that awaits those who willfully harden their hearts and re-crucify the Lord and bring him to open shame. So after dealing, detailing all the reasons why these professing believers who turn their back on Judaism are not able to renew, to be renewed to repentance, he's now going to reach out to the true believers in the congregation. Remember, every congregation has three types of people in there, right? We have those who are truly saved, who have trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. We have professing believers, those who have people who had made a profession of Christ at some point in time, but have never truly surrendered. They've come right up to the edge. They put their toes on the line, but they, for some reason, can't take that final step in faith and trust Christ. They want their faith on their own terms. I want to be able to say I'm a Christian, but I want to keep doing the things I like over here. I want to say that I'm a believer, but I still want to be able to be disobedient in these other things over here and not have it not be a big deal. I want to shape what God says in his word to my lifestyle, not change my lifestyle to conform to God's word. But I like that whole salvation thing. And I don't like the idea of eternal fire and judgment. So I'll say I'm a Christian. I may speak the lingo. I might have some Jesus gear in my closet. I might have a bumper sticker, a little fish on the back of my car. So everybody will know. I identify with Christians. But I've never, ever fully surrendered my life to Christ. But I'd call myself a Christian. And then there are those who are seeking, those who are seeking to understand. 
What does God's word have to say? Something keeps drawing me back to the word of God. Something keeps bringing me back. So now he's reaching out here. So why is he reaching out? Well, he wants to assure these true believers that their profession of faith is genuine and not like those whom he addressed in the warning passage. And then the second point is to point these true believers, point to them as an example for the professing believers and say, look at how they know their faith is genuine. Look at the full assurance they have in their faith. He's going to point to some specific things that they're doing. It's here he wants to assure them, we are convinced of better things for you than what I just told you about is going to happen for those professing believers if they don't fully surrender their life to Christ. He's in effect saying this, although I've had to speak to you true believers in such a direct and unsettling terms, we are convinced that your faith is not like that of the professing believers who have fallen away. He then sets out to give two reasons why he believes their faith is genuine. The first one is what he believes about them. and The second is what he knows about God. So first, he speaks confidently about what he believes about them. And some of the things that they have demonstrated in their life are the things that accompany salvation. He's not talking about the things that cause salvation. He's talking about the things that are the marks of somebody who's already saved. And if someone is truly saved, these are the things that will be invariably be found in their lives. And he starts detailing them in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So the two things mentioned here as the types of things that accompany salvation are work and love. Work and love. The work here, again, is not the cause of their salvation, but the evidence of it. Remember what James said in James 2.18. But some of them will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Here again, the author points us back to that illustration he just did in verses 7 and 8. Good soil that drinks the generous rain that falls on it brings forth vegetation, or fruit, if you will. This is fruit-bearing. Those who are truly saved bear fruit. And bearing fruit is one of those things that accompanies salvation. Your faith, your salvation, has a direct bearing upon the way you think and talk and act. We do not produce fruit. Only the Holy Spirit does that. We bear fruit. We bear fruit. And some of the fruit we bear as true believers is found in Galatians 5.22, right? The fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hey, I just came back from camp. All right. If we are truly saved, then these spiritual fruits should begin to be manifested at some point in our walk with the Lord. Now, God doesn't expect you to be fruit inspectors. Okay? And to say, well, that's a bushel full of fruit over there. Surely that one's saved. This one only has two pieces of fruit over there. I don't know if they're saved. What God is saying is, is that if you are indeed a new creation in Christ, if the Holy Spirit is not just beside you, but now indwells you, 
you cannot help but have some sort of transformational change and that part of that transformational change is that you will begin to bear the fruit righteous fruit not fruit that you're trying to make up on your own not fruit to try and you know not not just tacking on plastic fruit to your tree to make it look like you're really spiritual but the true fruit of repentance the true fruit of the spirit Spiritual fruit is part of that inward transformation that eventually manifests or shows itself out in your outward walk in the Lord. But there's yet another way in which these true believers have demonstrated their true faith. How is that? If I find that in verse 10, the second part, true believers demonstrate their love for Christ through their service to their brothers and sisters in Christ. That word ministered is diakonu. That's where we get the word deacon and deaconess. It means to serve. How specifically are they serving? We looked at that before in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. They were in prisons. They were in orphanages. They were ministering to people who had lost all of their property, all of their clothes, had been kicked out, had been uh, thrown in jail. And they continued to stand fast in their faith. They continued to serve the body of Christ despite their own persecution, their own affliction that they were receiving, their own loss of financial gain. And the mocking. They were in the prisons. They were in orphanages. They were wherever the body of Christ needed them to serve. What an amazing testimony. And no wonder these true believers were having such an impact on the world. But notice this as well. We talked about this last week. This is not just love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that demonstrates the trueness of our faith. Notice the text tells us it is love for his name. It is love that loves to see God glorified in whatever you're doing. It talks and speaks of our attitude while we're serving. So it's not just serving once and then never serving again. It's not just continuing to serve. But here the text tells us, what is your attitude like when you're serving? Is it an attitude of, well, I'll serve because they really need the help. But I hate every minute of it. I'd rather be doing this. We could always play the, that's not my gift card. Kind of get out of jail free, if you will. Or do we just serve because there's a need? Do we just serve because that's where God has demonstrated that the body of Christ needs to come together and serve? Do we just do, we just do that? Do we get our feathers in a ruffle because... We're not doing what we think we should be doing or we have too much responsibility or we don't have enough. Or we feel we should be leading it instead of serving it. What? The Bible would say, check your heart. Check your heart if that's going on. Because these servants here are serving for the glory of God no matter what it takes. Do you think it would have been fun to travel around a prison in the first century? No. It's... Uh, there were basically holes in the caves, carved out in a cave underneath the ground. It's a horrible, horrible place. Most people never came out alive. And these people were coming in there and ministering to those folks, knowing they were going to die. Are we just walking through the motions of serving, hating every minute of it, grumbling and complaining because it's not what we want, it's not the way we want it? That's not glorifying to God. 
selfishly serving our own desires, putting our needs ahead of the needs of others is not the mark of a true believer. Thankfully, this is not what the author of Hebrews sees in the lives of these genuine believers he's speaking to now. And then that brings us now to the final two verses that started way back that we talked about in chapter 5, verse 11. Now we're here in verse 11 and 12. So now after assuring the true believers that their profession of faith is genuine and not like those whom he addressed in the warning passage, he now moves to point to these true believers as an example of what true faith looks like. And, and especially to any of those who are still contemplating falling away from their profession of faith and returning back to Judaism. He wants to say, look at these folks. Look at these folks. He's saying to these professing believers, look and imitate what they're doing. Look at that. Because the only difference between you and the true believers are that they are diligent about their faith. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. He says here, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. These, we have... Two groups of people. We have the true believers and the professing believers. And he's comparing and contrasting the two. And he's saying the same reign of God's gracious, generous gift is falling on both of you. One of you is remaining true in their faith and growing and maturing in their faith. And, the, and another group of you are falling away and face eternal judgment. What's the difference? You both came out of Judaism. You've both been enlightened. You've both shared. You've both tasted. You both were there when the gospel was being shared. You both were there. Both groups were there when we were reading the epistles of those who walked with Christ. And yet one of you is responding in faith and the other of you is falling all the way back to Judaism. Both of you have had the same rain fall upon you. One is producing generous fruit, and the other, thorns and thistles. Remember, that's what his warning was in chapter 3. Flip back there for a second, would you? Chapter 3. Just take a quick look at that. Remember chapter 3, verse 12. You remember his warning to those in the wilderness? You remember what he said? Take care, brethren, that they're not that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away, there's our word again, from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as so long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Who provoked him? All those in the wilderness wandering, who had seen God's gracious gift, who had had, if you will, the heavenly gift, experienced all of that, hardened their hearts. When they had, uh, for who provoked him, verse 16, when they had, when they had heard, indeed, he did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
and to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see they were not able to enter his rest. Why? Because of unbelief. The author of Hebrews fears that these professing believers might fall away, that their hearts might be hardened by sin, that they would fail to enter God's rest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 for a minute. Because he's going to keep saying the same thing all the way through the epistle of Hebrews. He's going to keep saying, don't be like them. Don't be like them. Chapter 10, verse 35. We'll get there someday, I swear. Lord willing. Therefore, do not throw away your what? Your confidence. Your assurance. Which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. But of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. He wants them to have full assurance of their faith until the very end. What, what, what's the very end? It could be the end of their life or it could be when Christ returns. Regardless, it, the, the meaning is the same, is it not? I mean, stay true to your faith until the last breath leaves your body or if Christ returns before that point, right? So either one. And he wants them to have that same confidence that the true believers have and the same hope in Christ. They have all come from the same background. They've all had the same rainfall on them. Remember the five verbs there. But some have the full assurance of the faith and others have fallen away. The author of Hebrews says, I want you all to demonstrate the same diligence in letting go of the elementary teachings of the Messiah and press on to full maturity the true believers have done. That word diligence means to move quickly or to demonstrate eagerness to apply this fuller understanding of Christ to their lives. Those that are truly saved have done that. And because of that, their lives are bearing the fruit of true salvation. Those who have not are the ones that are falling away. And then finally in verse 12 in chapter 6, he says this. So that you will not be sluggish. You know what that word is? That's the same word, dull of hearing. Same exact word. He says, you could actually translate this in verse 12. So that you will not be dull of hearing, but instead imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So he brings this full circle from chapter 5, verse 11, when he talked about dull of hearing, to now. To those who are tempted away. They have been dull of hearing. They've been sluggish. They've not applied the truth of Christ to their lives. They have not let go of the elementary teaching of the Messiah and embraced the fuller meaning of Christ. And consequently, they do not have the full assurance that true believers enjoy. Beloved, at the very core of having full assurance of the true believer is that God has promised eternal life to all those who are truly saved. Do you believe that? I hope you do. 
how do you know if you're saved then, since some have fallen away and they shared many of the same evidences of salvation that you have? And at least for a while it appeared that they were saved, but now, ultimately, we find out they were not saved and they fell away. How then can you know, how can you possibly know if your salvation is real? The answer is, is that your life should manifest at least some of the marks of a true believer. There should be some manifestation of a transformed life. How can there not be? A.W. Tozer says, the Holy Spirit never indwells a man and then leaves him unchanged. Your life, in some manner, should reflect the biblical reality of what God has done in your heart. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's a desire now to glorify God in the way that we live our lives. The more that you see God working in you and through you, the greater your assurance will be that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6 The more you see these things that are manifested in and through your life now that were never there before should give you all full assurance that you are truly saved. But diligence is hard to maintain and laziness is really easy to fall into, isn't it? So how do we keep running the race when we feel like dropping out? We do what every true believer has done since Pentecost and we imitate those that have endured patiently in their faith. And, in, and they indeed inherited the promises. And that's what the whole next section is. In verses 13 through 20, he's going to say, let me give you a couple examples of people who made a profession of faith and then faced terrible trials and persecution. And God asked them to do amazing things, but they adored in their faith. And they have indeed inherited the promises. And so he's going to share about Abraham next. And then in chapter 11, he's going to list a whole bunch of people from the Old Testament on through and say every one of these folks remained true and endured and kept the faith. He's saying imitate the true believers who are not sluggish in their faith but are diligent to apply these truths and have and patiently endured because their faith is genuine. My friends, that concludes this entire warning passage. It was huge. Here's what I want you to take away from these truths. First, if you're a professing believer, do not be lazy. Do not be sluggish. Do not cling to old religious customs and ceremonies, but instead apply the fuller understanding of those truths in Christ. Don't just go through the motions of Christianity. Don't just be a professing believer. Be a true believer. And the only way to do that is to put your trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. For those that do, their lives will bear the fruit of a true believer and a transformed heart. Secondly, for those that do not, each day that they let pass is another day in which their hearts become harder and harder and harder. Every day you sit and listen to the gospel and reject it, your heart becomes harder. And it is possible for you to get to the point where your heart is so hard that you just completely walk away from the faith. You then went from producing and bearing fruit, if you will, if you were truly saved, 
or at least making a profession of Christ to now thorns and thistles, even though you've experienced the graciousness of God through it all. For them, they shall not enter his rest. And what waits them is what awaits all those who reject God's gracious offer of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Eternal damnation. Do not let that happen to you. Don't do it. Do not let that happen on your watch to those you love and care about in your family who may be hardening their hearts and walking away from a profession of Christ. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep living for the glory of God. Never tire of that. Never tire of living your life for Christ. Never tire of sharing the gospel with those that you care deeply about. Yes, you're going to face some persecution. Yes, you're going to be mocked. Yes, you're going to be ridiculed. Yes, you're going to be ostracized. But is it worth it to have those you love be in heaven with you eternally? I hope you're saying yes. I hope you are. Keep preaching the word. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep diligently applying the truth of God's word to your life. My friends, if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never truly surrendered all, you just went through the motions. If you're like me and you spent 40 years calling yourself a Christian, but you were never truly saved, don't let your pride stop you from surrendering your life to Christ. The stakes are too high. They're eternally high. Come to Christ. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Trust in his finished work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. Trust that he will come again. Do that. And enjoy the full assurance and the hope you have in Christ. For believers... Those of you who are true believers that all know that deep in your heart, keep preaching the word. Never give up on those. No matter how many times they reject it, never give up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this very difficult warning passage, Lord. It was hard to go all the way back from the beginning to keep reminding ourselves of the context it was difficult to do that, Lord, but there's a reason why it's in your word. There's a reason why there's so much packed into it. There's a reason why it was so challenging. There's a reason why it was so difficult to hear. As always, Lord, when we come to those kind of passages, they pierce us to our very souls. It's because, Lord, some of us, like myself, Lord, needed to hear that. I needed to have your word pierce my heart so that I would not be comfortable in just professing Christ, but truly surrender my life to you. I thank you for that day, Lord, eternally. And Lord, I know it's difficult to be diligent in our faith. I know it's difficult, Lord, to keep talking to the same, the same message to the same people that we love. But Lord, we know that you that saved them. Help us not to take it personally, Lord, but to be faithful in sharing the good news because we love them and we want to spend eternity with them. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of this passage in all of it, the encouragement, the toughness, Lord, of hearing that to, our, to ourselves and applying it to our lives. But thank you, Lord, for your word as always. 
It's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand, shall we?